Hello, everybody. Welcome to Comic Club, your friendly neighborhood comic book podcast. Each month, we read a comic or graphic novel and talk about it on the show. Go check out our past episodes to find a collection of conversations around the best and most interesting stories in the medium. I am your host, Blaine McGaffigan, and I'm joined, as always, by Adam, Monster Hunter Cook. I'll hunt your monster for a, you know, reasonable fee. How you doing, Blaine? Great to be here. Great to have you, buddy. We're streaming live today from Archer's Peak. This is our full episode where we cover our favorite lines, creator biographies, give out awards to our favorite art, and talk about possible adaptations. Quick warning, everybody, we'll be spoiling this month's comic, so proceed with caution. Adam, take it away. What did we read this month? This month, we read Something is Killing the Children by James Tynan IV and Werther Deladera, who intro- which introduced us to the town of Archer's Peak and the gruesome deaths of children from that town. But all of that's about to change when the mysterious Erica Slaughter arrives to do one thing, kill monsters. Blaine, what do you think of Something is Killing the Children? I got to say, I really dug the look, the feel, and the vibe of this. To me, that's really was my favorite thing about it. I think we read the first five issues, so there wasn't a ton of meat on this bone, to be perfectly honest. It was a pretty concise, pretty contained story. However, you kind of get the sense of this sort of – this backstory and this kind of like who Erica Slaughter is and she's a part of this organization and she has this um creature uh in the form of a stuffed animal that she that she communicates with and and it maybe empowers her we don't basically what i'm saying is we don't fully understand all what's going on with all the supernatural stuff and I love that. I love this sort of open-ended take. But to me, the art here is really, really strong. And I think as a first five issues, you know, it, it it was good. It wasn't like it didn't set my world on fire, but it did leave me wanting more. What about you? What did you think of this? I agree with you. I think that this one was a good start. Uh, if the listeners want to go back and take a trip through time to one of our earliest episodes of Bone, This kind of had me feeling the same way when we finished that reading for Bone, because Bone just really got the story started, introduced us to some critical characters, and kind of just set the wheels in motion for what, you know, were going to kind of be the the main plot points of the story, or potentially be the main plot points. We didn't really know at that point. And I feel a similar vibe to this, where you get a really good taste for what they want to do. They're introducing the characters and already kind of setting their arc in a way, um, you know, just giving you enough to sort of grab onto and kind of uh, like invest a little bit in these characters to want to keep reading. And then I don't know if we want to skip around a little bit, but by the end of it, the plot, I think it kind of ends on a cliffhanger in a way that you want to, you know, keep reading it the way that maybe a, a good, it, it's more than a pilot episode of TV, but it's like a really good first season that kind of like sets up a lot of stuff that you're interested to see where they're going to go and interesting characters that I want to find out more about, you know, between Erica, between the kid James, um, I think that's his name, 
And, you know, one character that you barely got a taste for that I was interested more is the kind of the police officer. Yeah. The the sheriff of town or whatever. He just seemed like he had something to him that, you know, is worth exploring. But essentially, to wrap up my my intro thought, I, I liked it and I'd like to see more. I kind of felt like this was a good taste to get us going. And like you said, the thing that I took away the most was the art. I love this art. It kind of reminded me of like some early Frank Miller stuff, you know, maybe some of that old kind of the 300 era. There's something about the chunkiness and kind of the way that it came across some of the way that these characters are drawn uh, that I I really thought was cool. Same. And and I think to me, the line work as well, um, the inking is kind of like it's not full on sketchy. But it it does have like this sort of unrefined, a really sort of quick um, sort of like look that kind of gives it more of an impressionistic style. And then that paired with some really great coloring um, just set like a really vibey tone. And and, and I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I It was a really good start, but I really don't feel like I know any of the characters. And I don't know how much I want to spend time or, or like – I'm like, is James the boy going to be like a main character? Or is yeah. he was just, was he just arc one? Is that, are they going to leave Archer's Peak or are they going to stay in Archer's Peak? I know they said they're going to hunt down the, the kids, I guess, of the monster. But, um, that it, it kind of left me like, the, you know, maybe she, she, it sounds like she goes from town to town. So this could like, I could be like, maybe we just meet a whole new cast of people and we just follow Erica Slaughter and her octopus. But, um, I feel like I don't even really even know them that well. So I think character-wise, it was maybe a little lacking. But, um, you know, I think we're in complete agreement in terms of the art here. Um, Let me ask you this, Adam. What would your stuffed animal be? You know, we mentioned at the top of the show that, you know, Adam, Monster Hunter, Cook... Um, when you go out and, you know, you get your, you know, instructions from your stuffed animal, do you have a stuffed animal whenever you were a little kid, a little, a little, little baby boy, Adam? I mean, what, what would it be? Of course. Yeah. I mean, who didn't have a stuffed animal? I, I'm sure he's still hanging around somewhere in a, you know, like in a memory box. I got one of those memory boxes, probably in my parents' attic somewhere. Uh, I got a little stuffed teddy bear because you know me, I'm like Mr. Classic American Boy. I just had a little yes. teddy bear and uh, his name was Bunky. I don't know what the origins of that name was, but I had Bunky. Don't know where he is now, but God, I hope he's doing okay. Did you have one? <laughs> What'd you have? I, I was trying to think whenever I was writing down this question, I was kind of like racking my brain. My daughter has, um, we've kind of gone through a bunch, but the one that stuck with her is Foxy, this little orange fox, which I love. To me, a memory comes up in my mind of a rabbit for some reason, but I know like my parents are going to listen to this and be like, Blaine, dude, what are you talking about? You don't remember. You're thinking you know, about the Velveteen Rabbit. Like, yeah, oh, or, that's yeah. Right. I always do or that. Or they're like, you don't remember like your best friend whenever you were a child, you know, I don't know, Hoppy or the kangaroo Hoppy. or whatever. I don't know. Um, no, so um, so what did you think of the sort of octopus supernatural kind of like backstory of Erica Slaughter? How did that hit for you? Well, if I can give some theorizing, I think that the octopus, the stuffed animal is sort of this link uh, sort of to her childhood and that kind of sense of wonderment. Cause I don't know if you remember this, but in 
the story, she talks about how adults can't see these monsters because right. they don't believe that they're real. But the kids still believe that they're monsters so they can see them. And I think that there's some connection there uh, between her octopus stuffed animal. Maybe maybe that's kind of her connection to her childlike kind of belief. I love that. And that's how she recharges or whatever. That's sort of – that's a, a theory that I have and something – I, I don't know, but there's something with that and then something also with her eye, but I don't know what the eye is about. Um, because her eyes like a weird colors or what? Because her eyes like a weird color. And if you remember at the end when she stabs the dude uh-huh. and like enlightens him or whatever, she basically stabs this guy and who's a, you know, he's an adult um, and forces him to return to, I guess, whatever. He can see the monsters after she stabs him. But when she does it, there's this weird kind of connection and she says, oh, this is yes. the, the house of slaughter. And you see these other people, they all have weird eyes. Yes. Yeah. And they're like glow, they're like shiny. They're glowing. It's like a, it's like and a there's, cable eye. Yeah. there's one panel, I think, with our guy in present day where he has a weird looking kind of blue eye. And I don't know if they, they really followed up on that in the later panels, but there was one I remember where it looked like he had had something that happened to his eye too after he got stabbed. Um it, Interesting. Yeah, um, I'm sure people who have read all of um, these books are like, "Dudes, like you're y'all are way off," or, or or absolutely right, Adam. But yeah, we just read the first five, and I love that. I thought um, whenever it showed that house of slaughter, all the people sitting around the table, and they each have their bandanas across their faces um, with the teeth, and That's some right. of the teeth are some of the teeth right are oh. different. And some of the teeth and the colors are different. And they and sitting in front of all of them, they all have a stuffed animal of some kind that I, I didn't put that together about the connection to their sort of childlike wonderment, but I think that's a great theory and it's gotta be it's gotta be right. I mean, I love that. That's a really cool page. We should come back to that at Art Awards, because that's a pretty cool page. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, well, Adam, let me ask you this. I have another question, Mr. Monster Hunter. What would your weapon of choice be? If you were to go out and fight, let's say, you know, this monster from this story. Well, I feel like, yeah, I kind of like, honestly, I don't know if I'd go chainsaw. I like the chainsaw because it looks cool. And that's a huge part of my thing, uh, looking cool. But I feel like the weight distribution of the chainsaw, not easy to wield. So some kind of a blade. I'm, I'm probably doing blades, maybe double blades. Machete seems like a good idea. Those are a good, they've got a good length to where you get a little bit of distance from your monster. But, you know, you can't have, honestly, if we're going back to our, our zombie training, you can't really have anything with bullets. You don't know what's going to take down this zomber, zombie or monster. But hacking away, cutting off some limbs, that's usually a safe bet. So I'd probably go, let's, let's go with machetes. I love I'm it. I'm taking dual machetes. Like, I'm Leonardo from the Ninja Turtles instead of Katanas, though. I got machetes. Yeah, and and um, at home, who's listening, he, he did the move where he reaches both hands behind him. But both machetes are, like, form an X on his back, on my right? Back. And, then, and then he just whips them out, and he's ready to go hunt down some monsters. I always come back to um, 
I mean, the iconic scene in Pulp Fiction, right? Whenever, um, is it Butch is, is in the pawn shop and he's, you know, I think maybe he starts out with a baseball bat and he's like, yes. okay, I think I can do this. Um, he goes over and he gets the chainsaw and he kind of wields it. He's like, oh, this is kind of heavy. I, this, is kind, this one's kind yeah. of heavy. And then he looks up and, and that's what I would choose, what he sees. And, and you mentioned the weight distribution. And so you talk about Leonardo and you, you talk about doing the on the back katanas. I would do the uh, katanas on the side, and I always lo- think it's the coolest look to have the long katana on the left and then the medium katana on the right and then to do the old cross-body grab, right? Yeah. You're reaching across, you're doing an X with your arms, and then you're, boom, you're pulling them out. And and in fact, whenever you draw your katana, you could even draw them with the attack. You know what I mean? So that's what I would go for. I do. I like the the differing lengths of blades too, because it's 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 like you have two you know two lines of defense. You got the long blade, and then once they get in close, you drop that long blade, and you got your short little dagger. You can do some good stabbing with it. And then whenever you know you're really injured, you know you're fucked. Then you reach behind and you grab your tiny dagger. And you commit seppuku. Because it's you that's go out, honorable. Uh, yes, yes. So that's how you go. So um, there you go. That's that's the comic club monster hunting weapon that's how we would guide. <laughs> Send yeah. us your, you know, your own strategies, favorite weapons. Yeah. Hit us up. But but what did you think of the monster itself? Um, you know, I think in so many books we see you mentioned zombies, vampires. Um, werewolves, like sort of established movie monsters. And I think it was interesting to just kind of see a kind of whole new, almost like a kid's nightmare uh, monster. What did you think of it? I thought it was good. Kind of, you know, a good amount of scary. I feel like it is sort of ambiguous enough to where you could kind of see your own version of a scary monster in it. But there's a lot of kind of, you know, you're you're like, oh, is this like, it's kind of bug-like. It's yeah. got a lot of dripping fangs. You don't really know. I feel like it, you know, it kind of changes a little bit because we don't get tons of great shots of just the monster. Right. They kind of use, you know, the the you know, this the unknown terror. But um and I, I love that aspect of it too, where you know, some characters just can't see it at all and there's just they can't see it until there's like a, a limb, you know, has been cut off. And and uh I like that effect too, but yeah, I, I thought it was a scary monster. Anything with a bunch of teeth, I think, is a good choice. Yeah, you get a shot of, of Erica. It's kind of like in one of the uh, montages where she's fighting other monsters. And the monsters of this universe seem to all be kind of like this like black, almost kind of like oozy, sometimes spider-like insectoids, uh, a lot of teeth. I'm, I'm seeing, I'm looking at one panel right now where there's almost like these octopus post tentacles but i love this they all look like they're coming out of the shadows right they all look like as a kid whenever you're just like imagining you know you're walking home from your friend's house and you're imagining what's going to come out of the woods at you or you know what might be hiding in your closet or under the bed and i think it encapsulates those ideas really well um all right, well, let's move it on over to the show called The Best Line. This is where we like to showcase the written word and highlight our favorite moments of dialogue, exposition, and more. Adam, kick it off. What is the first best line? Okay, first best line. Um, 
this one's pretty good. This one might be my best one, honestly. You know, I try to find the lines, some lines that maybe encapsulate what I think the themes are going to be kind of thing of. And it's hard when you only read five issues, but I'll give it a shot. This one I like, and it's from Erica. She's talking to James, but she's looking at her stuffed octopus. She's trying to get some info from it. And she says, doing something doesn't always make you feel better, James. Five more children are dead, killed inside a house. That first line, doing something doesn't always make you feel better, James. I think there's something really interesting in that line about how you don't do it for the satisfaction of it. You do it because that's what needs to be done. And I feel like that's very indicative of the Erica Slaughter character. Yeah, absolutely. She she seems like a character who isn't exactly happy with her lot in life. You know, she wouldn't have chosen this role for herself, but she, it's a necessity that she has to live with almost like a career choice and um, something she feels like she must do. So yeah, I, I love that. That's a really good call out. My, my first best line is, you know, I just mentioned this sort of montage and James, the boy asks her, um, about her experiences killing monsters. And you see this, these montages of her just slicing open monsters and this forlorn look upon her face. She says, yeah, I've done this kind of thing before. And it's really that sort of what you were just talking about is she's not proud of it. She doesn't love it. She's not happy with her monster hunting life, but she knows it has to be done. So that was my best line. I like that a lot, and I feel like that's a good intro into my next one because Erica, she just, you know, she has most of the the best lines, I think, in this story so far. She has a lot of kind of just classic badass hero lines, and I thought this was one of them. She is with James, and they're getting ready. They're planning, and she says, we're going to need weapons, lots of weapons. That's just, I like that. You know, you could see that line in the trailer for it if they're making this into something just a nice cook like good action line yeah absolutely that was one of the ones i i wrote down and it um it didn't quite make my list but yeah it is is definitely sort of one of those perfect one-liners um my next is whenever she's speaking to her octopus and this kind of hints at the sort of um characterization and backstory of the world that we don't really get. And you you see this octopus with kind of this purple text box, right, in a different font. It says, the kill pattern is now more consistent with a class B obscure type than a class E. I don't know what voice that was, but um, it, it's a different voice. And it, it kind of hints at like, okay, this monster is obscure type. It was like, it, it, it alludes to there is a whole world of monsters where there's different classes, there's different versions, there's different there's the spider monsters, the the squid monsters, all the different ones. And I sort of love that really concise world building with just like one line where all of a sudden your brain fills in all the blanks. What is a C D and F monster look like? You know, you start to imagine all these things, and I just kind of love that. Yeah, that's such a good way of, you know, establishing some of this world and building it out in such a tight package. I really like that. And just like what you said, um, how you don't need to, you know, write too much more. It's not expository at all. You can just fill in the blanks. That's great. I love that one. And that one goes into the next one, which is actually, folks, 
a co-best line award. Blaine and I That's both right. had this down. We liked it so much that we just said, you know what? We're going to give them the award together. So, and this is also in relation to the last one. This is when Erica is having her showdown with the monster. She's in a cave. She's got a freaking chainsaw in one hand, some kind of a glowing blade in the other. And the monster rears back and she says, I swear to God, I'm going to burn that fucking octopus. And you know what? She's funny. She has some funny lines, I thought. Yeah, it, it, I, I love that. And it hints to the relationship, right? You know, we've talked about her sort of like lot in life feeling towards her role as a monster hunter. But she also has a, I don't know if the octopus is like her handler or if it's like her just communication device. It's really unclear all in this. Like, I, I like, is there somebody behind it? Is the octopus um, communicating with the house of slaughter? And they're kind of like, I, it, we're not really sure, but she knows she has an antagonistic view with that octopus, right? And the way he reports to her. So I, I, I don't know. I love that line. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like, uh, yeah, like you said, like a handler, like maybe someone who's sourcing the jobs who you, you know, you have to work with, even though you don't really want to. And it's very funny. I love it. It just kind of leans more into her as the the reluctant hero, yes, which is yes, just yes. a great, great character. Yes, yes, absolutely. All right, we're going to move it on over to the best at what they do, where we chat about the creators themselves covering how they got started in comics and highlighting their other notable work. First up, we have James Tynan the fourth. He met. All right, so Tynan attended Sarah Lawrence College and was studying creative writing. And his teacher at this time was Scott Snyder, um, famed writer of Batman. And um, you know, he he piloted a lot of DC for a long time. Very famous uh, writer. And Tynan and him have been had a close working relationship for a long time. Kind of a mentor mentee, as far as I've sort of understood it. Where. Tynan was writing backup stories to Night of the Owls backups, Batman Eternal. Um, James Tynan wrote The Talon, um, which is like the uh, the owl like um, commander's um, side story. So they worked on that. They worked on Justice League. And then once kind of Tynan really developed his voice and developed his own thing, he had been working on indie and, um, and his own stuff like throughout all this, but he really got elevated as a writer after Scott Snyder kind of went off and started doing his own thing. And Tynan was the main Batman writer for what I would consider like one of my favorite like modern runs. It This is whenever I really fell in love with James Tynan and he created a lot of new things um, for the Batman universe. He created Punchline, Ghostmaker, and I mentioned this, I have a toy of Ghostmaker up here, Clown Hunter, and this other character, Miracle Molly. He's really inventive and really great about adding new things and always wanting to push the Batman universe forward, not wanting it to always be Batman and Alfred in the cave doing the same old things. He moved Batman to a different location, uh, downtown. And I, I just... 
I've read a lot about his thinking about this on his Substack, which is like his newsletter. And I'm, I, I mentioned it last time. I'm just really impressed by the guy's sort of marketing mind and the way he constructs stories. So if you're kind of interested in like, sort of like the behind the scenes um, constructing of these comics, I highly recommend you subscribe to the Tiny Onion Substack. Some of his indie work that he has one called Wind, which is a teen book. Um, and then over at Image, he has the Department of Truth. And then at Boom Studios, this obviously something is killing the children. He has a story I really like right now called A Nice House on the Lake. And it's this really interesting story where like these 10 people go off and it's like the horror side, right? They're in this house stuck there and there's this mystery that's happening there. Highly recommended. And then his latest thing is um, Sandman Nightmare Country, which follows the Corinthian, um, the the nightmare walker. And um, it's really good. It's, re it's really kind of taking up those vertigo threads and that he grew up with loving. He has one um, an Eisner for Best Writer in 2021, and then three Eisners in 2022, Best New Series, Best Continuing Series for Something That's Killing Their Children, and then Best Writer. So um, the dude's doing some good stuff, and he's coming up. Again, I highly recommend his Tiny Onion Studios substack because it's there that he's publishing his own sort of new books. He doesn't write for the big two anymore. He has a um, one called Blue Book, which is like an alien comic. And um, Razor Blades is his ongoing sort of horror anthology. Next, we have Werther Deladera. He is an Italian illustrator who is also, in addition to illustrating Spider-Man Family Business graphic novel, is illustrating The House of Slaughter, which is a spinoff series of this book that we read. So if you liked this and you're hungry for more, go check out The House of Slaughter, which is Tynan and um, the original illustrator coming back together. Next on colors, we have Mikel Muerto. He is a colorist from Spain. He studied illustration, ran a small press, and worked as a graphic designer. His other work is coloring radiant red and Let's move it on over to the Art Awards. This is the segment where we hand out award-specific visual moments in the book. It can be a single panel. It can be the coloring. It can even be a whole scene. Adam, kick it off. What is the first Art Award of the night? Okay. First Art Award of the night. I'm giving this one. We're just going to ease into these awards, folks. This one's going to get the Moment of Levity Award because... In a scary movie like this, you need a couple moments where you can catch your breath, right? Reset the heart rate. And the one that I chose for this was a moment when Erica gets arrested <clears throat> and uh, and she slides her, her driver's license, supposedly, to the guy. And you get a close-up of it and he just says, this can't be your real name. And you see a very fake-looking driver's license and... He goes on to ask her, uh, this looks like you just printed this off at Kinko's. And she just says, yeah. <laughs> so I'm giving that the moment of levity award. No, I, I love that. And she's like, it's not, he's like, it's not even laminated. <laughs> like it, it just is like a piece of paper. I love yeah. that. Um, okay. My first art award of the night is called the most demonic page. And is it a panel with the monster in question, the obscure type type E? No. It's the octopus 
whenever we get that reveal of the octopus um, toy, the sheriff, um, I believe, who is you know c- coming to find her, opens the door, and Erica says, now what seems to be the problem? There's a glowing underneath the door, and you see the octopus sitting on the bed, and raising above that is this crazy-looking, like, bald child with red eyes and like fangs and like pointy ears with like tentacles for arms and then like its torso is like it's like a flower opening with like teeth and then all just like tentacles it's like floating in the air it's the craziest looking thing and i love that like it really i was fascinated with the octopus like that was one of the things that really like struck me about this book because it added this weird mystical element that really fascinated me and I wanted to know more and frankly looks evil it's not like an angelic like you know angel sitting on the shoulder that's guiding her and helping her it's actually like a scary thing that might have some ill intentions I like that I like that a lot and I hope to see more of those you know there were a couple really interesting uh panels that they had especially when it was kind of trying to show how one character could see these demons or monsters. And then there was another character who just has no idea what's going on. There are a couple really good moments of that. I like that. My next one is called the monster mash award. Cause I really just, we talked about the monster. I had to give one award to this monster cause I liked him a lot. And I went with one that was really early on. Cause I, w- I was just kind of surprised. And I think it's the first one you see and you just get a panel of this this monster, you know, reared back, and it's very it's a weird looking monster. It's got like spidery kind of legs, but then a tall torso with almost humanoid arms. It looks like, and in this page, it is ripping a kid in half. You see his torso on one arm, and then the legs on the other arm, and there's intestines and blood going in between. Great panel. So I'm giving that the Monster Mash Award. I love it. I love it. And keep that image of the monster reared up in your mind because a panel that I have next uh, will echo that same sort of pose. It is called the Disney Award. And listen, I don't know much. um, I, I haven't followed like Disney animation a ton, but this one thing that stuck with me that I always love is they said that they always tried to add something in the foreground something in the midground and something in the background. And and this is a famous piece of like, you know, art in general. Like whenever you see art, it is good to create this sort of dynamic um distance, right? Where you're there are things in the background, midground and foreground and it kind of creates this really cool element. So the most Disney panel goes to this panel at the very end whenever you see um, Erica and she has her glow stick and she's about to fight the monster or she's looking through the cave, right? And she finds the bodies of the children. And then Tommy Mahoney, who, you know, we knew he was going to come in the cave and we we're always scared of whenever it was going to happen. He's sitting in the midground and he's has his gun pointed at Erica, who has the glow stick in the foreground and says, not a chance. And then reared up behind him just completely in the shadows with the red eyes is the monster. And I just sort of love this three dimensions of storytelling and your eyes kind of go across it. And I always love that. Love that. That's a great one. I love a little Chekhov's gun. You know, they throw in a gun. 
they're going to shoot that gun at some uh, point, people. Absolutely. So I like that a lot. My last award, it's been a while, folks, but we're going to give out a Breaking the Form Award because we love it when people do something a little against the norm. This one wasn't even that crazy, but it stuck out to me, and I thought, you know what? This is just cool enough that I noticed it, and that's the whole freaking point. And it is in the climax. Erica is fighting this monster. She's flying through the air. She's fully upside down in this panel with, you know, the chainsaw on one hand that's just slashed him, her daggers at the other hand, and her tiny little knee is poking outside of the panel just to show the motion that she is, you know, flipping through the air to do. And I thought that was just awesome. So I'm giving that the Breaking the Form Award. I love that page so much. And I didn't really put it together until you mentioned Frank Miller at the top of the sort of show. But um, her pose is kind of like this weird pose that like I always think about in Dark Knight Returns when you see Carrie Kelly Robin whenever she's like you see, you see Batman and he's doing his like classic Batman move and then Carrie Kelly is doing like is that her name like whatever her name yeah. is the girl Robin and she's got her like uh she's jumping through the air and has her little um Adam what is it called the little uh, slingshot, slingshot right yeah. and and I love it's these weird poses Frank Miller does where their are where their legs or knees are really high it's almost like the Spider-Man poses right and I just love that yeah, I love that too. And that that was another thing that kind of made me feel the Frank Miller, you know, influence on this. She looks so dope there. I lo- I love the pose that she's making cuz it's she's upside down. It's crazy. She's just like flying across the air. It's so cool. Um okay, my last award of the night is is, you know, in a book full of montages and I mentioned another montage already. This one is going to get the best montage. And it is whenever she is about to go into the cave. We've been building up to this the whole time. She puts on her sick, sick mask. God, I love that mask. And I know that um, Tynan has, is now selling these masks in his shop. Because, oh, yeah, I mean, that's like, a no-brainer, dude. Yeah. COVID, those must have been huge. It's such a good look. It's such a good look. And then she pulls out her chainsaw from her bag, whips it across her back, she fires up the glow stick and then you just see her eyes, the green across the glow as she enters the cave. And I just love that. It kind of has that um, sort of like evil dead ish, you know, quick cut montage that we love over here at comic club. And um, you know, I'll always, I'll always shout out a montage. We love a good montage. I love the center panel in that montage. Almost picked it myself for an art award because it's got a classic hero shot where we're looking up at the hero, right? And they just, they're towering over you, larger than life. And she's kind of got the the chainsaw on her, resting on her shoulder, just very kind of, you know, casual. She's in control. And I love that. That's a great one. Great art awards. Thanks everyone for being here. Thank you for being here, everybody. Let's move it on over. Let's take a stroll. We're going to take a little stroll, guys. Over to Adaptation Alley, where we talk about possible adaptations. There's not currently an adaptation. Adam, I'm going to pass it off to you. What's going on down on Adaptation Alley today? Well, folks, we do have an adaptation in the works. And wouldn't you know it, it's a Netflix joint. Netflix, man, they got their hands in just about everything these days. And they're pretty good, actually, with the comic material, the comic source material. I feel like a lot of these we say Netflix is working on. So 
honestly, good on you, Netflix, for recognizing good creators. This one's going to be adapted, I, I believe it's set to be a TV show right now, by a gentleman named Mike Flanagan. Do you know Mike Flanagan, Blaine, off the top of your head? He's a he's a horror director. Of course I do, bro. I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm a horror. I'm a horror guy, and I am deep into the what? Do you know about the Flaniverse? Please tell me about the Flaniverse. I don't know anything about the Flaniverse. <laughs> that that is what Netflix is now calling his sort of ongoing sort of like project that he has over at Netflix. And I think he just released his fourth series over at Netflix. He does one every October, and me and Kate watch them all. We actually did not finish Midnight Mass, and and after we finish recording, I'm literally going to go in the other room and and put on Midnight Mass. And then his latest one is um, called The Midnight Club or The Midnight Society, I believe. Um, but you, you, you describe Mike Flanagan. Well, I feel like you know him better than I do. Yeah, The Midnight Club is his latest one. He's a horror kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say hot shot, but he's a big yes, up and comer. And people like him, people that like movies, you know, people that make good movies. Quentin Tarantino talks about him. William Friedkin talks about him. And he's directed some, you know, tons of horror stuff and some bigger name stuff recently. Uh, Dr. Sleep, which was, you know, an adaptation of The Shining um, source material. He did that. That's huge. And yeah, he has all these shows on Netflix He's got Midnight Mass. He did The Haunting, the of Hill House. Of Hill House. The, the Haunting yeah. of Hill House is the one I would recommend the most. The reason they call it kind of the Flaniverse is all the same actors kind of act in them, so it becomes almost this weird, almost anthology series where they're not playing the same people, but it's creating this whole universe. The other thing that he did that was highly regarded is Gerald's Game, which you can also find on Netflix, which is an adaptation of Stephen King. And um, it was quite good. It's this really weird kind of like locked room story, but um, that one's a really good one. So, um, so he's going to take it, Adam. He's taken it, and I feel like you have a very good, uh, you know, captain at the helm of that ship. So I'm really excited to see what happens with that because obviously the source material is pretty highly lauded. I don't know how much we hit this, but this won a couple Eisners over its run. And, you know, not to say that awards mean everything, but it's always a good sign when you got some Eisners on the shelf. Absolutely. And I think what. Netflix, if we're going to go into, you know, a little bit of streaming talk um, on the show, we talk about sort of like, we've mentioned Netflix's sort of wane, right? The way their their budgets seem to have gotten a little bit cheaper. Um, they can't figure out their identity. I think a lot of us have felt this. Like, it is, it is everyone's favorite thing to, like, dig on Netflix, right? It's just kind of like what everybody does. Um, it's fun. Um, but we all feel it. But what they're really looking for and what they don't have other than Stranger Things is they need a sort of IP. They need some sort of thing that keeps people back because Netflix famously like does like two seasons, three seasons of a show and then they're done. You know, that they spend a whole bunch of money and we, we were over t here talking about Netflix just recently um, with Sandman. And they still have not renewed it for season two. I mean, I don't know what their metrics are. I don't know how many people watch Say Man. It was number one uh, for a bit there on their top 10. But the whole point of Sandman is you could tell Sandman stories for the next 10 years. 
and and there is a lot of meat on this um um this something is killing the children and in the house of slaughter you have you can build out a whole world and build out a hot whole ip and build out a whole universe and if i were netflix that's what i would be wanting to do i would i would renew sandman right away because you could just there's stories to tell just build the world you have the audience and start to cultivate that sort of like comic booky alternative vertigo horror kind of like you know stranger things sandman something's killing the children it's like this alternative style of of comic book fandom that like mcu is not really doing i think that's such a good point and i feel like they gotta invest in some of these properties a little longer because we've gotten into this new sort of world where shows just do not get any chance to find themselves and there have been tons of shows over the years that just needed a a season or two to kind of figure out the story that they wanted to tell and how to tell it and that goes from wholly original shows to shows that were adaptations of things because sometimes it's just hard to kind of find the groove and sometimes the story you set out to tell you know gets overtaken by something that becomes much more interesting and we need some time shows like this give them time to figure it out and then you'll get the payoff of having invested in this huge universe like you said because then you can tell stories for 10 years or whatever yes yes it is so often i think in tv where shows find themselves in seasons two, three, and four, right? It, 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 the, the, the writer's room gets cooking. The directors are, are, are getting it. The actors start to understand who these characters are more and you start to develop it in an in a interesting way. So I love that. I think the other thing that Netflix really has going against it, and I hate to say this, but the drop model is outdated at this point. It worked whenever Daredevil season one came out and you just dropped 10 episodes of TV in one night. But I think right now, and and there was a case study about The Boys, uh, where The Boys season one dropped all in one go. And it took, it was like six months later before people started talking about The Boys because people needed to like watch it and catch up to it. I'm still not even done with The Sandman, Adam. I got like a couple left. And if it was dripping to me on a weekly basis, you better believe I would have watched every episode. But I always know it's there. I always know, like, I always know I can go back to it. And the the conversation has died. And to come back around to the boys, the season two, they did a weekly drop. And they their metrics were way better because it was generating the buzz. And each week people were talking about it. And it sustains where Sandman was top, he was on the top 10 for a week, two weeks, and then is gone. It was 11 episodes. They could have had it on the top 10 for 11 weeks. You know what I mean? You're killing yourself. Because it's so much of an easier mental investment if a show only has two episodes, three episodes that have come out. You can say, all right, well, I can just catch up. But if it's already finished, like you said, it's sitting there. You know it's going to be there whenever you want it. There's way less of that kind of you know, sense of being a part of the conversation at that point. Yeah. And I think that we're going to see some correction because you're already seeing other companies do it all the time. I kind of like, I think Disney does a pretty good job with some of theirs where they'll, they'll start you off with two or three to get you going, give some of those binge heads something else to watch, but then they switch over to a weekly 
model. And I, I like that a lot more. And I hope that more companies go in that route. A hundred percent. Yeah. Again, I mentioned the sort of full season drop was novel at the time, but that was before this glut of content that we live in now, right? That was back whenever it, it was like, you know, Daredevil season one is out. I'm not, I'm not watching anything else anyway. Like there wasn't, there wasn't five other streaming services competing. There was only Netflix back then. You know what I mean? And so I, I, I love that. And, and, you know, HBO is really stuck to its guns as well about doing that same model. So I'm pro like drop two and then drip out the rest. Um, so I, I think Netflix has been pretty stubborn, but, um, I would love to see something is killing the children over at Netflix. Uh, Mike Flanagan, you know, put it in the Flanniverse, you know, and, and let's do it. They <laughs> seem to really is... like him. The Flanniverse is, you know, <laughs> taken off and there's yeah, there's tons of properties in the Flanniverse. So, yeah, hopefully that's a good sign that they got someone like him to take it over and in, that they already have this relationship with him that they're going to be willing to give him sort of the breathing room to figure out this show absolutely so that's gonna wrap it up for this week's episode we hope you enjoyed it if you did go tell a friend and like this episode and leave a review on your podcast app of choice you can follow us across the internet at comic club podcast i am blaine mcgaff on twitter i'm danger adam on instagram and that's gonna wrap it up for this week's episode adam Comic Club out. Comic Club is brought to you from Upper Esh Media. This episode was edited by Adam J. Cook. Our intro and outro music is by Tiger Cup. Katie Livingston at Living Kate designed our logo. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on social at Comic Club Podcast and join our Facebook group to continue the conversation online. Remember, everyone, read more comics.